word comes from 2 Samuel 16 this morning. Let me pray, and then let's turn to his word together. Father, your word gathers your people. Holy Spirit, we're grateful that you, you speak and you reveal that you've gathered your word, these ancient words. No matter how often we come and sit under the preaching of your word, you speak. And so help our hearts to anticipate your work among us this morning, because when you speak, there's power and work that happens through your word. Holy Spirit, we depend on you humbly. We're desperate for you to work in our midst as we submit to this word together. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. George Marshall was U.S. Army Chief of Staff from 1939 to 1945. I didn't know until this year that he has a home in Leesburg. Nicole and I went to visit his home last month and a tour guide walked us through with a couple other people. Marshall's bedroom was on the second floor of his home and directly above his bedroom was the bedroom of a sergeant that served as his orderly. He was assigned to Marshall to assist him with personal things. Now, according to the tour guide, one day while cleaning Marshall's guns, one of the guns went off and fired through the sergeant's floor into Marshall's bedroom while he stood nearby. Now, that sergeant could have carelessly killed the chief architect of the massive war effort of, of the United States. Marshall's response, he sent that sergeant back to basic training so that he could learn how to properly clean a gun. Brilliant. After those two weeks of basic training, this sergeant resumed his duties as Marshall's valet and chauffeur. Now, I don't know whether or not that was wise discipline, but I'm sure that sergeant told his grandchildren about that story someday. Now, to say that David's in a dark valley would be a significant understatement as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 16. David is fleeing Jerusalem in a funeral procession of sorts. He's gathered by loyal advisors and soldiers and family members. And he's taken flight not from a foreign enemy. He's taken flight from his own son, Absalom, and the people of Israel, the vast majority of the people of Israel who have sided with Absalom over David. They've rejected David as king. And yet we see David reveal confidence in God's sovereignty over all that's happening in his life during this period. David seems to understand that what, what's happening to him is happening as a result of his own sin. David allows that all the betrayal that he's experiencing is coming underneath God's sovereignty, that it's underneath God's control. In fact, David says, he acknowledges that it's discipline for his own sinful rebellion against the Lord. But David also expresses in this flight from Jerusalem his confidence that if God wills it, God can restore him. In fact, David anticipates the Lord's restoration. At the proper time, after a time of discipline for his own sin, God will restore. God will settle up with those 
who are doing wrong to David even now. And I want to suggest an intersection between David's life and our situation. When you and I face the downstream consequences of our own sin against the Lord and against others, we can trust God's wise discipline and his abounding restoration. When we're facing the downstream consequences of our own sin, we can trust God's wise discipline and his abounding restoration. If you bring your addiction into the light, you may experience months or years of negative results. Or if you kick your anger pattern out into the open, you may have to endure discipline for a season. Kids, if you confess to your parents that you've been lying to them, you may face some consequence for that behavior. Teens, if you're honest about cheating on the exam or about breaking curfew, you may be punished for what you've done. But hear this. When we face those downstream consequences of our own sin, when we've confessed them to the Lord and to others, when we face those results, God will carry us through. We can trust his wise discipline. When we genuinely turn from our sin, like David did in Psalm 51, God will carry us. All those downstream consequences of our sin, a raw marriage, a broken relationship, being kicked out of school or class, David teaches us that in those moments, we are not the victim of our circumstances. Our lives are not careening out of control. Instead, a sovereign God is at work, guiding those downstream consequences with infallible wisdom and unending power. But listen, God is not only trusting, or David is not only trusting in God's wise discipline, David is also anticipating abounding restoration, that there will come a time when God restores. He's trusting in the truth of Proverbs 28, verse 13, that he who confesses and forsakes his sin will obtain mercy. By this point in the story, David is convinced that God abundantly pardons. So church family, trust God's wisdom in discipline and anticipate his abounding restoration. In verses one through four, we see Ziba apparently mislead David. Look at verses one and two again that Will read for us. When David passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a a couple donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink." Matt walked us through a a host of people that David is interacting with as he flees Jerusalem from Absalom. And the next person that David meets is Seba. Seba is the servant of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is is the son of David's friend Jonathan and the grandson of the former king Saul. Most kings, when they took the throne, would have killed all of the former king's sons and grandsons, but not David. David not only spares Mephibosheth's life, he gives him all of Saul's property back under his control, and then he asks Seba to manage all of Mephibosheth's property for him. And Seba shows up here with provision and mounts to sustain the king and his party on their flight. Look at verse 3. 
The king said, where is your master's son? And Seba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And then the king said to Seba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Seba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Now, David may be wondering why Mephibosheth is not abandoning Jerusalem with him. Maybe he sided with Absalom too. Aha, this is what Seba has come. This is why he's come. He tells David that Mephibosheth is banking on the fact that Israel will return the kingdom to Saul's family and Mephibosheth will take the throne. Now this story will continue in chapter 19 where Mephibosheth passionately denies Seba's story. But for now, David seems to side with him. David's world crumbles around him. The ground beneath his feet falls apart. Over the last four years, his son Absalom has stole the hearts of the people of Israel away from David to him. Absalom has painted David as, as incompetent and incapable while elevating himself in their minds. And David's left to deal with the downstream consequences as all the people, his advisors, his military commanders, and his family members and the very people of Israel that he's been serving choose sides between Absalom and David. Can you situate yourself in the story? Can you feel the turmoil in David's heart as everything begins to crumble? His sense of betrayal has to be crushing. His sense of loneliness and isolation suffocating. When we are betrayed and isolated like this, we're tempted to rehearse all the good we've done for these people, all the sacrifices we've made as we process their betrayal of us. Our minds fan bitter resentment and self-pity into a roaring flame. How could they trample on the marriage covenant that we hammered out before God? How could my brother blurt out that embarrassing secret to my friends at the playground? How could this good friend so suddenly leave me in the dust for a new set of friends? How could my parents miss the game? How could they be so distracted that they don't notice how lonely I really am? How could this loyal colleague turn so ruthlessly and slander me so egregiously? How could this trusted leader that I've prayed for and followed for so long hide this sinful double life. In a world where Satan has some authority, we will experience deep relational pain at the hands of one another. We're going to regularly endure one another's sin, including the kind of betrayal and abandonment and isolation that David faces here. And it's okay for us to grieve that. It's okay for us to lament what's broken. It's okay for us to long for a time when these things won't be so commonplace. Here's David in Psalm 55, processing the betrayal of a close friend. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter. 
yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You might take Psalm 55 with you this week and process it. David's heart rightly turns to the Lord as he processes the relational pain that he's experiencing. And in 2 Timothy 4, Paul, the apostle, writes to his protege Timothy while Paul is in prison in Rome waiting for his second defense before Caesar. And Paul pulls back the curtain and reveals a little bit of what's happening in his heart. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and also the books and the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul has been through it. He's lost friends and coworkers. He's sent friends and coworkers to other cities for the gospel's sake. And he stands before Caesar alone. No one was there at his first defense. No one stood by him. All deserted him and left him alone. And I've always been struck by Paul's response to Timothy. May it not be charged against them. We would give Paul a pass if he struggled here with a little desire for vindication. If he struggled with a little bit of self-pity, we would give him a pass. But he doesn't. He's marked by faith. He's anchored by something. Or better, he's anchored by someone who steadies him. And so is David. After a long season of brokenness, David's faith seems to resurge like a tide in God's faithfulness. In verses 5 through 14, we see Shammai bitterly curse David. Look at verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. Shammai is part of Saul's extended family. And if you're new to the Bible, Saul is the previous king of Israel. He's a Benjamite. And God rejected Saul as king because Saul rejected God's word. And clearly, Saul's family is still bitter about God's decision to raise up David in Saul's place. And try to picture the scene in your mind. Shammai comes out hot. He's flinging dirt, he's throwing stones, and he's cursing David continually. And David is surrounded on his flight from Jerusalem by the soldiers that he's trusted to fight on his behalf and with him for years. And Shammai hurls rocks as he's bitterly cursing David. But why is he so violently angry? Look at verse 7. And Shammai said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Get out of Jerusalem. Get out of the city of God, you worthless man. 
The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Three times in these two verses, Shammai calls David a man of blood. That's why he's so angry. David, this is happening because you shed blood and stole the throne. And in a sense, Shammai is wrong. But in a sense, Shammai is right, as we'll see in a moment. He's wrong because David went through great lengths not to shed the blood of Saul and his household and his general. Though he had ample opportunity and though he would have forgiven him for doing so, David shows great restraint and faith in God. He waits for God to act on his behalf. But it's clear that at least one member of Saul's extended family clan holds David responsible. Well, one of David's brothers in arms can't tolerate this any longer. Look at verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Abishai is the brother of David's general, Joab. He's a fiercely loyal soldier for David. And he's also incredibly gifted at what he does. Years before, Abishai is one of two soldiers who volunteers to go with David into the midst of Saul's camp to stand next to Saul. And it's Abishai who says to David in the middle of the camp, in the middle of the night, there's Saul's spear. Let me pick it up and pin him to the ground. I won't need to do it twice. Abishai is the captain of three of Israel's most elite warriors who do amazing things by God's power. And now he's offended that Shammai would dare to curse the king like this. But David is unmoved by his blustering anger and he corrects his friend. Look at verse 10. Then King David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite, this family clan of Saul's, leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. David's rebuttal to Abishai is essentially this. You and I are nothing alike. We've fought together arm in arm in battle for years, but you still don't know my heart and my mind or God's. If Shammai curses me because the Lord told him to curse me, if he's cursing me because the Lord told him to curse me, then why would we tell him to stop? And if my son Absalom seeks my life, how much more this Benjamite relative of Saul's? Leave him alone. And then David ends with certainty. The Lord has told him to curse me. Instead of exacting justice in the moment, David turns and trusts the Lord to act on his behalf. And now we're getting into the heart of the main idea of the sermon. David is trusting the Lord to act on his behalf. Look at verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for Shammai's cursing today. I don't believe that David is being wrongly passive here. 
David is resting quietly in the providence of God like he's done so many times before when Saul was in his path and he could have killed Saul and taken the throne. David is not taking matters into his own hand. He's trusting quietly in the hard providence of God. David will wait for God to take up his cause and he recognizes that God's hand of discipline is in this and behind this. David is walking with God's word as his perspective. David knows that his family is collapsing because of his own sin. He remembers what Nathan the prophet said to him in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Why, David, have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. David understands that what's playing out before him are the downstream consequences of his own rebellion against the Lord. And so he rests quietly under the discipline of God. He's just signaled this last week in chapter 15. He's just acknowledged God's hand and God's ability to bring discipline and restoration. He said in 2 Samuel 15, 25, to Zadok, the priest, carry the ark of God back into the city. Zadok wants to bring the ark with David as he flees, as a sign that David is still God's anointed. And David says to him, carry the ark back into Jerusalem. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it, the ark, and God's dwelling place. But if he says, David, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Has your heart submitted that far to the Lord? David rests in the good, wise, and powerful heart of God. There he safely rests. If God wills it, I'll return to Jerusalem. I'll see the ark and I'll be in the presence of God again. Let God do to me what seems good to him. I am safely under his discipline and therefore David can walk by faith. Look at verse 13. So David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. David continues on. The king of Israel, the one anointed by Samuel in Bethlehem all those years ago who waited to become king, waited for God to act. He walks along as Shammai curses him and flings dust at him and throws stones at him. And he's quietly walking, trusting because he knows God's sovereign hand is with him. David believes he's where he is because of his own sin, that this is a result of God's wise discipline and he can rest in that. The betrayal, the abandonment, the cursing, all the downstream consequences, they are not out of control. Behind Shammai stands a sovereign God who uses the volitional sin of Shammai to curse David, and Shammai did. You say, how could God do it? Well, he did it. God told him to curse, 
And Shammai did. And Shammai will be responsible for his sin. God works sovereignly without Shammai losing any agency or responsibility for what he's done. Isn't this what happens when Jesus is nailed to the cross? Peter says in Acts 2.23 in his sermon to the Jewish people, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And listen, Shammai was right and David knew it. He wasn't completely wrong. He was just mistaken. David is a man of blood. David is guilty as charged, but he didn't murder Saul or any member of his family, but he did murder Uriah the Hittite with an Ammonite sword. David must have heard the reverberation of the condemnation of his own guilt as Shammai cursed him on that day, as Shammai wiped the saliva from his beard. Oh God, I am a man of blood. I am a murderer, but you, Lord, had mercy on me. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, you blotted out my transgressions. You washed me clean from my iniquity. You cleansed me from my sin. You renewed a right spirit within me. See, David's sin problem was ever before him. And he's yielding and submitting and trusting God with the discipline. Every blow he receives in discipline is not random. It's purposeful. It's also restorative. David anticipates that God may restore him. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 25. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and let me see it, both it, the ark, and God's dwelling place. So Christian, if you are walking through the downstream consequences of your sin, if you've confessed your sin, and you're experiencing the consequences of your sin, trust him in the discipline. Your life isn't careening like an out-of-control raft toward the waterfall. God is working in your life. He's guiding. He's moving. And if you trust him and submit to him and yield to him, you may anticipate restoration. Thrust yourself upon the truth Hammered out in Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever, whoever, it doesn't matter what you've done. It does not matter what you've done. Whoever, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them, whoever confesses and forsakes their sins will obtain mercy. In Hebrews 12, verse 10, we read that God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. If you've confessed your sins to the Lord, if you've kicked them out into the open, you have obtained mercy. And the discipline that you experience in this life is discipline onto good so that we may share in his holiness. 
He's instructing us in the middle of discipline. And for the moment, the writer of Hebrews says, all discipline seems painful. We don't like it. It seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Any parent who's raised children who feels the tug of, I love this kid, I don't want to give them this consequence, but I love this kid and I must give them this consequence. I must train them. I must show them what it's like to relate well to authority over them, to good godly authority over them. It's right for them to be trained in this. How much more so a righteous God who does not struggle with sin. Don't conceal your sin. You will not prosper. Turn to him in confession. Be honest with him. Be brokenhearted about your sin and you will obtain mercy. Oh, won't you abandon your sin this morning for mercy? For the first time or the thousandth time, won't you abandon your sin for mercy? Now, let me be clear, because I don't want to imply that every hardship and every difficulty and every trial is discipline for our sin. That's one of the reasons I use Paul's example, because he's experiencing the same thing as David is, but for very different reasons, at least it would seem. In 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. And then he says, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me. And he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul is throwing himself upon the sovereignty of God. He's claiming that Jesus stood with him in that moment when he needed to give his defense to Caesar the first time. He was with him. Jesus was with him and strengthening him so that he could proclaim the gospel and all the Gentiles in Rome might hear. Paul doesn't seem to be under God's discipline for his sin, but he is experiencing intense trials and he's blasting the trumpet, announcing that God will accomplish his purposes. You may be enduring trials because God's disciplining you, but not because of your sin, but for sanctification. He's disciplining you and me for sanctification. It's a discipline of endurance. He's training us to run the marathon that he set before us. This is the message of James 1 and 1 Peter 1 and here in Romans 5 verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you're experiencing trials this morning, it might be because of your sin. 
It might be because God's disciplining you for sin, or it might be because God's disciplining you for sanctification. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The trials come to discipline us. They expose areas of self-reliance and dependence and strengthen our dependence on Him instead. So trust Him in all the trials and difficulties. Sometimes they come with such rapid succession that we barely catch our breath between them, but He is good. Trust His wisdom in the discipline. Nothing is out of his control. He's working in the suffering to produce endurance and character and hope. And when we all stand before Christ, when his reign and government and judgment is evident to all, we will not be found shameful. We will not regret that we've placed our hope in Christ. It will be clear to all that it was the right decision to put our hope in Christ. We will not be ashamed for that. Our hope will not be in vain. We will never regret our decision to trust Him. Our faith is on an, on an external object. It's not in ourself. In these moments when we're enduring trial, we don't put our faith in ourselves. The Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts reminding us to put our faith outside of ourselves in some external object or better, in the person of Christ. After the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn, and then they go to the Mount of Olives. And by the way, it's the Mount of Olives where David and the people weep in 2 Samuel 15 as they're leaving the city when they must abandon Jerusalem. It's the same Mount of Olives. And Jesus says in Matthew 26, 31, you will all fall away. He's talking to his disciples. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And after Peter famously objects that he'll never betray Christ, Jesus presses further into the Mount of Olives and comes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he pleads with Peter, James, and John to pray with him because his soul is so sorrowful it feels like death. So sorrowful. Such anguish that his sweat turns to blood because of the stress he's under. The sorrow's source is the burden of sin that he's about to bear. But while he lies in torment on the ground, his disciples sleep. And after the crowd enters the garden and arrests him, the disciples flee just as he predicted. And Jesus is left alone alone to face the trials before Jewish and Roman leaders, alone to endure torturous treatment from the Roman soldiers, and alone on the cross, crying out with a loud voice for all to hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows the answer to that question. This is the cry of the damned. Jesus absorbs the tsunami of God's righteous wrath against him. And it's for the sin that he carried on our behalf. Make no mistake. Jesus bore that God-forsaken state so that we wouldn't have to. 
He's bearing our iniquities, not his own. He's absorbing our chastisement, not his own. He is drinking in that moment to the very dregs the cup of God's wrath that was reserved for us. Which means that if we turn from our sin and trust him, if we look not to something internal, but to something external, to the person and work of Jesus Christ, if we trust his sacrifice, it means there's no wrath left for us to drink. If we believe that our God's wrath was poured out into a cup that Jesus needed to drink and he drank it fully, then there is no wrath left for those of us who are in Christ, which transforms discipline, doesn't it? The discipline that we experience in this life for our own sin or for our own sanctification, either one, it is not discipline unto wrath if we are in Christ. It is not punishment. It is training. It is discipline onto something good. It is discipline onto glory. It is discipline onto our sanctification. It is discipline onto conformity to Christ. It is discipline onto not depending on ourselves, but depending on Christ. That is the nature of God's discipline. If we are in Christ, there's no wrath left. That's why you can trust his wise discipline. And that's why you can anticipate abounding restoration. Walking by faith as David did, walking by faith as Paul did, anchored by God's powerful presence, believing that if we cast our burden on the Lord, he will sustain us. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. If you're experiencing discipline this morning for your own sin, the downstream consequences of something, or you're just experiencing the discipline of God training you for the marathon that's ahead of you, trust his discipline, rest underneath it, and anticipate his restoration. He is good and his love endures forever. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that our relationship with the Father does not depend on us at all. Our faith is in you, that you drank for us the cup of God's wrath and there is none left for us. I pray that as we stand and sing, as we pray, that you would strengthen us this morning according to your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for taking the truth of your word, pressing it deep into our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.